This is the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 14th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. I'm Ed Zollers and I'm recording again from Phoenix, Arizona. We're going to be looking at a couple of things this week uh, as we come out of the election week. And the first thing is we will look at a case where the tax court finds that adding to the list of listed transactions requires the IRS to comply with the Administrative Procedures Act. And that's going to cause a bit of disruption on Section 6707 Cap A. We'll discuss that issue. The tax court is effectively agreeing with a Sixth Circuit decision that came down earlier this year. We're also then, for the most part, because not a lot went on this week again, uh, things kind of go into sitting still while waiting to see what's happening with the election. So we're going to talk a little bit about the election to see what's there. We're going to talk about the election results we have and what are likely tax actions in the lame duck session. We'll talk a little bit about that. It's become a little clearer. I'm recording this on Sunday midday. It's become a little clearer this weekend about at least one key issue that could have a lot to do with the lame duck session. Uh, We'll talk a bit about that. Plus, we'll also talk a little bit about what about next year with what we see from the election results. So we'll take a look at both of those. And those, of course, as always, are speculation. And Congress rarely does what I think they're going to do. But I'll give you at least my ideas about what's likely to happen as we come up. But let's start first with the case of Green Valley Investors, LLC, versus Commissioner. This is a published tax court decision, 159 TC number 5, issued on November the 9th of 2022. This goes back to IRC section 6707 and the penalties that arise when a taxpayer fails to file the 8886 reporting listed transactions for each year in which they apply. Now, this case involves notice 2017-10 specifically and which made effectively uh, certain items related to conservation easements listed transactions that had to be reported. And in this case, Green Valley Investors and a few other taxpayers, that's the et al. in the name of the case, all had this same issue of having a listed transaction, having a transaction that was a conservation easement. The conservation easement, they did not report the listed transaction on the listed transaction form, and the IRS eventually examined. Now, this is not dealing with the part of the case as to whether the uh, Conservation easement worked, shall we say. As I recall, that part of the case was no, it didn't. This issue was solely the penalty for failing to put the listed transaction form on the return. So you're trying to keep it from, you're trying to go from a a disastrous result, uh, keep it from becoming a horrendously disastrous result. So that was part of what we're dealing with here. And the taxpayers at least got this much of the damage control to work. And it's going to disrupt a few things. The issue involved, of course, Section 6707 Cap A. If you remember that, that imposes some rather significant penalties on a taxpayer that fails to disclose a listed transaction and notes that the law provided that the IRS had the ability to effectively uh, you know, come up with that list of listed transactions. And the IRS has been doing so generally by issuing notices, much like Notice 2017-10, that was issued adding this particular transaction to the list of listed transactions. 
Now, back earlier this year, there was a case called Man Construction versus United States, uh, 227F41138 from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. That case held that this, you know, putting things on the listed transaction list required the IRS to follow the Administrative Procedures Act, or the APA, and that the IRS not having done so because it requires notice, it requires a comment period, it requires the IRS then to publish a final decision on whether they're going to move forward with their proposal and also to deal with uh, at least significant comments. There's a bit of a split uh, regarding that nature. A man construction seemed to indicate you had to deal with all comments. As I recall, we have a couple of issues there. But in any event, whatever it is, you know, you've got to do that and publish. And the IRS had not been doing that. The IRS has simply been publishing notices which go just into the Internal Revenue Bulletin. But there is no comment period on a notice. There's no comment period. There, there's no draft put out with comments, at least rarely. There are a few, I guess. We've got some revenue procedures that have come out in draft form, and there's been comment periods there. But rarely have we had a whole bunch of this. Generally, for things like this, there's just a notice issue. Now, the tax court effectively, at least the majority of the tax court, agrees with the Sixth Circuit in Man Construction that you cannot add to the listed property list without going through the complete uh, Administrative Procedures Act notice re regime. Generally, as I noted, under the Administrative Procedures Act, it was added a few years back, there is a specific set of steps the IRS must take when they're giving what's effectively legislative, is what they refer to in the case, guidance, as opposed to simply interpretive guidance. In essence, when they're adding to things. And the, you know, the taxpayer said, well, you know, this case, it's true. We don't need it. While it's not required for, and this is the term that was in the statute, interpretive rules, general statements of policy, or rules of agency organization procedure or practice, the taxpayer argued that adding a transaction to the listed transaction list was effectively doing something beyond that. It's not just interpreting. It's essentially, at this point, actually adding requirements that are not directly in the law, not merely interpreting requirements that were already in the law. So that didn't meet any of the exceptions. Right. In this case, the court said, and agreed, at least the majority did, identifying a listed transaction was found to be, by its very nature, a substantive, therefore legislative rule. And as such, as a substantive rule, it was required that these taxpayers, you know, that the IRS follow this notice procedure. They rejected the IRS argument that in the statute, the, you know, the Congress had provided an IRS exception. They're, of course, going to say that the IRS had the right to publish and select this list. And they're saying that's, you know, that, that, well, that, that, that effectively removes the APA requirements. But the court made it very clear. The APA itself said when enacted that the only way you get rid of it is to do so explicitly. And the majority felt that what we found in this statute fell far short of making it clear that Congress explicitly did not want the Administrative Procedures Act to apply to these rulings. Now, the result of this is obviously all of those items added to the list of transaction lists since the Administrative Procedures Act was passed, probably at this point they are you know, questionably valid or invalid. Certainly, unless the IRS appeals this to a court of appeals and takes it up through the courts, 
you know, we're probably not, you know, it, it, we're going to right now assume they're invalid. Certainly the tax court believes they are. Uh, since taxpayers can always take these things there, it's kind of important that the tax court believes this. As a published opinion, even the dissenting judges in this case, if they're hearing a case that has the same facts, they'll be bound by this decision. So they will have to, on this matter of law, agree that these things are invalid. Obviously, what this can allow the IRS to do, the simplest fix for the IRS would be to just simply go through the formal notice process and comment process, just re-release all of them, giving notice, right, and get, hearing comments and then replying, you know, and then basically issuing their explanation about why they accepted or rejected various comments and then new final publication. And I'd expect that's probably what the IRS is going to do in this realm unless, you know, we end up with a situation where they really, really feel like, hey, you know, we might be able to win this on appeal. So we'll see what they do with it. As it stands right now, uh, this is here. The other question is, given the way this was argued, the next question is going to be what other things that the IRS has been publishing in the Revenue Bulletin will be deemed by the courts to be a legislative action as opposed to a merely interpretive action. And that could also come down to whether they will be treated as, you know, valid in that standpoint. Now, I should point out, I suspect a lot of what we see in notices is interpretive, right? It's not really laying out new ground. This statute was somewhat unique that the IRS was given the authority to go out and do and basically add to the list. Congress was not defining what a list of transactions was generally. They weren't generally giving a list of transactions they were effectively turning this over to the service. So it's not clear how much different from that a statute will have to be before the IRS will be deemed to have to get consent, right? To have to go and do the notice consent routine. For instance, just quickly, because I was speaking on the topic recently, and I'll be speaking on it this week, uh, you know, if we're talking about things like the IRS notices on the employee retention credit, those look to me to be far more interpretive. Congress never suggested that the IRS got to write the rules. And since they're interpretive, they probably stand as is. Now, since they're interpretive, there's also a better chance you might be able to challenge them straight up if you were going to go against this. Uh, by the way, for those people from for those people who are working with, who are finding issues with the RC mills, my gut tells me they're probably not going to. Because those also are a set of items that even if the court said, well, the IRS should have had comments on this, that doesn't mean the court's not going to say, but you know what, you're right about the law. That's how it works. And I think in a lot of things we see in those notices, that's going to be how it's interpreted. This case, though, you had to have the IRS identify something before it could be a listed transaction. A reportable transaction is a different beast. That is based on rules found in the statute. And so there, what IRS might have said about things that might be reportable, that's probably more interpretive. But listed, this is unique. The IRS had to identify things for it to be, for it to be treated as listed transactions. So again, I think we're going to need some more clarification about, you know, what's the real, how far does this, does this decision go out, assuming the IRS does not decide to challenge or doesn't get successfully challenged, or we don't see Congress change the APA. So we'll see what happens. Now that considered, that was probably the big case of the week. Otherwise, eh, not much except a CPA who couldn't claim an NOL. We're not going to talk about that case. So we'll take a look at rather what everybody was watching on Tuesday. And we're going to talk about here the election. 
And I want to first talk about what are we likely to see in the lame duck session of Congress. Uh, remember, lame duck session is the session. Congress is coming back to town now. The election is over. This Congress stays in place. I believe it could stay in place all the way until January 2nd or 3rd. Uh, forget what our official start date is. I have to go back and check again. Uh, so in theory, the existing Congress, the one, you know, the, 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 the rest of the term of the Congress that was elected back in 2020, that doesn't finish until the new Congress is seated very early in January. And normally Congress does come back and deal with things that have to be dealt with year in. Obviously, uh, the continuing resolution the government's running under uh, expires before the new Congress is seated, so they'll have to deal with that. But the other question is, sometimes they come back and deal with things like tax bills and tax extenders. It is important, though, to understand that what's going to happen here probably does depend somewhat on the election. And at the time this was written, the Associated Press had basically had the following based on called races as to where we stand. Now, as always, every so often, a race that is called ends up not turning out the way that it had been projected. So it's always possible these numbers could change. But as of when I started recording this, the AP had decided that essentially we would have the U.S. Senate. They have stated that 50 seats will be held by Democrats, 49 by Republicans, and one to be determined via runoff in Georgia. Because the vice president is a member of the Democratic Party and the vice president breaks ties and votes, that effectively gives the Democrats the control of the Senate, right? They will get the leadership. They'll be able to set things up. They have the control. So tentatively, Democratic control, unless something were to happen and, we, you know, in essence, one of these seats were to be lost. If only one seat swapped and we ended up with this, you know, basically 50 Republicans, 49 Democrats. So we had one of the seats given to Democrats turns out, nah, final count really went to Republican. Then we'd be waiting on the runoff in Georgia. The Republicans would need 51 seats to have control because, of course, they don't have the vice president. In the House, still up in the air. As of last I saw on the AP, 211, uh, basically, seats right now are projected to be held by Republicans. In the House, remember, every seat was up for vote. In the Senate, only one-third of them. And 201 for Democrats. 218 is the majority. There are 23 left to be called. Yeah, it should be 218 majority. So 23 are left to be called. It is likely that the Republicans will take control, right? They only need to pick up seven of the 23 seats. Now, the one hitch has been a lot of the seats that have been outstanding from like midweek up through now had been in areas that were very blue. So the Democrats look further behind than they are now. But at this point, as we said, basically the Republicans will probably still get control. It, it seems difficult looking at the seats that are out there, not officially called yet. It appears there are at least seven of them that when the dust settles should end up in Republican hands, which would get them to 218. Probably they'll have a few seats beyond that but it will be a very narrow majority. Now, what that means for our lame duck session, right? So House is very likely, as I said, to have a small Republican majority once all races are settled. 
And the Senate should be under Democratic control if all the called races come out as projected. If both end up at 49, both parties, I shouldn't say both. If the if we end up at 49 and then 50 for Republicans, where Arizona or Nevada fails to come out as projected, then the Georgia runoff would determine if the Republicans could have two of those called seats for Democrats end up flipping to their side when the final numbers are in, then yeah, they wouldn't need the runoff because they'd be at 51 seats. But the question is going to be, what exactly? Lame duck congresses do take some direction from the election, even though obviously the election doesn't directly affect them in terms of the end of this thing. And this election seems to have been pretty much a, we're not changing much of anything, election. Certainly there, there was not the projected uh, red wave that would have given the Republicans a solid majority in the House and, you know, and control of the Senate with a number of seats to spare. Uh, that apparently did not happen and it's not going to happen. So now we're sitting with something that's only slightly different from what we've had before, the big difference is that now the Republicans, the party not in the White House, will control the House, and but the Democrats would still have control of the Senate. Everything's divided. That does mean legislation is probably not going to be an easy thing to run through. Now, if the Democrats are not sure about this call that they're going to be in control of the Senate next year, then you would expect that they're not going to do much except clear uh, nominations from the president, especially for judgeships, uh, which, of course, remember, is not subject to the 60-vote cloture rule. Uh, they would probably clear as many of those as they could before the year ends, because next year, if the Republicans were in control, there is a, you know, they, they suspect, as the Republicans suspect, if the Democrats were in control when they have the White House, that it's going to be very difficult to get nominees through. Right. Nominees are going to move very slowly. They will either slow walk them, very slow walk them, or they will simply vote them down. Right. So that's it. So in essence, there could be a lot of clearing judges if the Democrats were uncertain about any of these seats. If things develop that make it seem like maybe the calls for Arizona or Nevada were slightly early, you'd see the Democrats retreat back and at least wait until the runoff election which would give us three more weeks of unknowns. And perhaps, and then beyond that, if it's clear, they wouldn't have control. They'd just start clearing those things out. Otherwise, if they are, if, if they feel clear, Senate leadership feels clear that they are going to have control of the Senate, then the Senate will probably want to switch more to legislation, liking to clear legislation that can be cleared while there's still, while the House is still in Democratic hands. Right, meaning that therefore it's more likely the ultimate bills will be more in line with what with the bill they can get through the House will be far more likely to be what the leadership of the Senate would like than would be true waiting till later. Now, understanding that, you might wonder, well, why would the Republicans ever want to agree to that? Well, here's the catch. The Republicans may be motivated to get certain things off the table prior to next year. It's going to probably be because whenever you have a very small majority, uh, you end up with a problem that two or three members, if your majority is not very large at all, it could only take two, three members of your caucus who, you know, just want to throw a fuss or create a problem, you know, or demand something in a bill 
to totally stop you from doing anything. And it's not out of the realm of possibilities that we could see two or three Republicans, let's say, on the right who insist on something being added to a bill that then a same number who are in, you know, seats at risk that are in purple districts might not agree to. So kind of the same issue. We've seen this problem in the Senate this year, obviously, with uh, Senator, you know, when the when they've been trying to keep Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema happy on the Democrat side, you know, the same sort of problem. And then when they do that, they are threatened with, let's say, certain on the progressive side who said, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're not going along with that. So this could allow them to clear this things up. It also means that some members that have lost their seat can now vote for something that maybe they actually don't mind voting for, but politically would have been dangerous for them. Well, if their career has been ended by losing, uh, they may very well be willing to vote for it. And that just clears something out that leadership in the House would not have to deal with next year. And I think it's going to be tough enough to run. It's always tough to run either either chamber if you don't have a very big majority. I think they might like to simplify that. One of the key things we expect to see to come through, you know, everybody's saying if anything goes through, we're going to see an extender package because there are a few things that we would like to clean up at this point. Now, right now, two key parts appear to be in some way, shape or form part of this when they do the deal. As always, this deal only works if both parties get something they want. So the current bet is that we're going to see some sort of extension of the child tax credit that we had under ARPA. And on top of that, we're also going to see an attempt to put back in the 174 expensing, you know, for research and experimental costs. As you may remember, I should say, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, one of the money raisers to make the budget numbers work, you know, to keep it at 2.1 trillion and get Bob Corker's vote in the Senate. I told you, when you're managing narrow majorities, which Republicans were, back at the TCJA time in the Senate. Yeah, you know, you got to do certain things. Well, we had to keep him happy. So they put in this provision that would have required these research experimental expenses to be capitalized and recovered over five years uh, if you did the work in the U.S. or 15 years if done outside the U.S. Obviously, since we've been expensing this stuff since forever, uh, you know, that's not a very popular business provision. It is something that was proposed to be, you know, fixed in the Build Back Better Act. So at least that says this is not something that the Democrats in general would say, no way we're passing that. So, you know, it's it's one of those things you saw child tax credit. If you remember when TCJ, one of the other fights we had there was that, you know, Marco Rubio was pushing for an expansion of that, not quite this far. But you probably have those two, you can come to some agreement. Now, the child tax credit is probably is a way more expensive one, especially if it's extended as long as Democrats would like. But obviously the Democrats want to get that to 25. Again, tying it all up with TCJA extenders. Uh, my guess is it may not get there, but if it doesn't get there, don't be surprised if 174 goes out no further into the future than the child tax credit does. Uh, this one, maybe I say there's a 60% chance of a package with those two in it occurring if the Democrats feel that they have control of the Senate going forward. If not, Democrats don't feel like they do, then that probably puts it right at 50-50, very close, 
A lot depends on how quickly a deal, a deal can be struck because if they're clearing all these nominations, that leaves far less floor time to do things. And obviously, leaders should be concentrating on just getting those nominations through and not spending as much time negotiating up a deal. So as I said, that's for those two. Now, it is possible we will see some other stuff, right? Some things less likely, but definitely some parties want to put in there. And there's some thought that the Republicans might say, well, if they're going to get the child tax credit for longer periods of time. Maybe we can get these two things in. The theory being they would like to another TCJA uh, fix. One of the other things that happened this year in order to raise money for TCJA was the business interest rules. We changed the calculation for adjusted taxable income that it now will be reduced by depreciation, amortization, and depletion. Uh, there is a push to try to get that backed off and just keep the standard before those items uh, income that we then use to calculate how much interest could be deducted under the business interest rules and also to let bonus depreciation go to 100% at least for 2023. Remember, next year for 2023, bonus depreciation is scheduled to go to 80%. These, again, these are far more likely if there's time to negotiate. If there's not time to negotiate, you may just get the first two. So that, that's part of the deal. As I say, since I first started writing this up on Saturday, and today we have gone to the point where the AP called a race that finally put the Democrats at 50. If the Democrats are confident in that number, you know, and we don't see any evidence that it's moving off, then we have a better chance of maybe getting this. It would be a trade-off. We'll let you have the child tax credit for another year, two years, but you give us these things for the time period you've got it. So we'll see how that goes. You know, that, that's going to be one of the things that's going to be in play. Uh, Representative Brady, who will be retiring, uh, who is the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee and former chair back when the Republicans last were in control of the House, he's indicated he thinks there's a very good chance that the retirement bill, a retirement bill like the one the House passed overwhelmingly, will get attached, believing that there's not really any opposition to it in either the House or Senate, but it needs a vehicle. So if we get an extenders bill, then what we've been, what we referred to initially as a Secure Act Two, that now has two different names in each each chamber. But the follow-up to the Secure Act that came from from Representatives uh, Neal and Brady, uh, Representative Neal now being the chair of Ways and Means, Representative Brady being the ranking Republican, uh, and that passed overwhelmingly. There, you know, at least Representative Brady feels fairly confident that that will be attached to any package that goes through. I suspect he's right. I think the real problem is, as noted, that we've got to get a package to go through. There is a chance these things do tend to take longer than you think they should. It may come very late in the session. A lot may depend upon how hung up they get on the continuing resolution. You know, are they going to get hung up a lot on doing the continuing resolution? Now we're going to be looking at a potential government shutdown situation. Or do we settle that quickly and then have time to work this? Don't forget, Congress does like to get out and leave, you know, on time for the Christmas break. So, you know, they don't like being hung around during that period. And it becomes a question whether any of the members of Congress will feel that taking care of extenders is worth hanging around over the Christmas break. So we'll have to keep our eye on that. That's one thing coming up. Next session, what happens next year with the new Congress? 
Well, let's start with the House. And I'm going to assume the Republicans get control. Again, it's not absolutely locked down yet, even just with projected wins. But it seems very likely. It seems a much rougher path to figure out how the Democrats get to 218 than how the Republicans get to 218. We'll just phrase it that way. Remember, as I noted, the ranking Republican member of Ways and Means, Kevin Brady, is retiring. So, And there are reported to be three different members, Republican members, pushing to be chair of Ways and Means. That means we're going to have some uncertainty as to what's coming out of Ways and Means next year because the chairman does influence that committee pretty heavily as to what it does. They'll have a major influence on what's heard in the committee. So we'll have to wait and see what are the interest levels of whoever gets control of the committee. There is no obvious person who will step up and take control. The Senate... Actually, the Senate, even if it switched, even if it switched control, is a little clearer what would happen. Assuming that we are right, assuming the AP is right, that the Democrats will control the Senate, then we should see Senator Wyden continue on as chairman of the committee. Uh, if the Republicans do, we, you know, let's say reverse at least one of those projected races and you know, project, reverse one and win the runoff in Georgia or reverse two, and we don't care about the runoff in Georgia, uh, then it would almost certainly be Senator Crapple of Idaho would become the new chair of Senate Finance. And we know pretty much what Crapo likes, what Wyden likes, you know, kind of the directions and the things they'd look at. And as always, you know, we're going to be looking at this more in the standpoint of, you know, what, what would happen, right? Since we'll no longer have one party controlling the House, the Senate, and the White House, we're going to be looking for bills that you have to pay attention to that have decent levels of support in both parties. Remember, uh, the House can pass everything they want. In fact, usually they will pass a lot of stuff because they just need a simple majority. But considering that the Democrats control the Senate, it doesn't really matter what the House passes unless it passes something that can pass the Senate and vice versa. If the Senate... Because now the Senate usually has more trouble because we need 60 votes to normally be able to put anything through the Senate. And obviously the Democrats are going to have at most 51, it would appear, based on current projections. And that's only if they win in Georgia. Well, 51 by my math is short of 60 by 9. So presuming, you know, they, they really can't just push through a Democrat-only bill out of the Senate except through reconciliation. The reconciliation process would allow them to do that. But again, if it can't, if it won't get report support in the House, it doesn't matter. So while there'll be a lot of posturing and putting up bills, at least for votes, to get people on the record for things that go on to run against them when we come up with the next election in 2024, uh, mostly we're going to be looking for bills that move let's say, under the sponsorship of both the chair and the ranking member of each committee. So probably be looking for, in the House, uh, Representative Neal being a sponsor along with whoever gets the chairmanship. And in the Senate, we'd probably be looking for bills that both Wyden and Crapo essentially sign off on. Right? Those are things that are much more likely to be passed. Uh, as I said, other bills, expect them to be proposed, expect them, especially in the House, where you pass anything, you know, you can pass anything fairly easily from the majority. Uh, we'll have a lot of this is never becoming law. So don't get wrapped up following those bills. As we've proven multiple times, 
the House in control of the out-of-power party tends to pass all kinds of things while they're in that position. However, if their party gets control of the White House next election, suddenly none of that stuff can get through. It becomes really interesting. Remember the you know, repeal and replace, and that did finally kind of get through the House, though barely and not necessarily in the way it had easily cleared it back when it was clear that it wasn't going to get through the Senate and wasn't going to get a signature at the president's desk, even if it got through the Senate. Uh, you know, with that, 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 same, that same setup will be coming this time. Uh, in the Senate, again, they really can't pass them without 60 votes except a reconciliation. So while they might put a reconciliation bill up, you know, ju- just to then have the Senate, have the House reject it, uh, most likely you're going to see in the Senate more often, they're going to just try to put things to votes and force Republicans to vote it down uh, just to get them on the record as not having 60 bills. And if when you're in control of the Senate, your theory then becomes, and the other party is thwarting the will of the American people because the majority of people and the majority of senators support this, but they won't let us vote on it. Okay, we, that's all posturing, and that's normal, and don't worry about it. Uh, if the extenders do not get passed in the lame duck session, there may be pressure to pick them up the new Congress. I told you there's a reason why on the Republican side, that's a reason why they might want to go ahead and get the extenders done in the lame duck session and be willing to cut a deal with the Democrats to avoid the pressure of trying of give this pressure of having to deal with the extenders and forcing whoever becomes Speaker of the House to deliver an extenders bill that may prove very difficult with a House that where you have a number of members who have had virtually no option to do anything for years because they were in the minority, uh, who suddenly feel like you know two or three of them have a veto power over the you know what's now the controlling party, and they start trying to exercise their powers. So. Yeah, we may see less of that. Again, we don't know what's going to happen. Keep your eyes on it. But definitely, it's not going to be the same thing we saw the last two years where we look at the, you know, where we look at them trying to run something through reconciliation and then the reconciliation bill is what gets through. That option does not exist anymore because you're not getting a Democrats-only reconciliation bill through the House. So it'll be very different what we'll see coming the next two years. By the way, this has kind of played out always in the past too. You know, recently for the, this will be the third straight president where you got complete control to start your term. Therefore, you could use reconciliation, get everything through, get whatever you wanted. But then two years in, you know, you no longer have control of at least one chamber of Congress and you lose control of one chamber. And because of that, you know, you no longer can pass these big bills you wanted to going to be seeing a lot more in executive action. You may see the IRS get more aggressive in issuing regulations and other guidance because that would be the thing the executive branch can do, you know, without having to worry about Congress. So we'll see things like that. Uh, But that's more likely what we're seeing for the next two years. Okay. Well, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of November the 14th, 2022. Current Federal Tax Developments, as always, is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, right? I, as always, you know, do this every week. If you have questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. You can also write, you know, you can also uh, catch me on discussion boards. I can be found on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, Washington, and the discussion board for Idaho, so keep your eyes there. 
again, out this week doing some coursework. I'm going to be a couple days in Tucson this week uh, doing sessions. I'm going to be speaking remotely uh, for the Minnesota tax conference this year. Unfortunately, conflicts with the days I haven't days I was committed to in Tucson. Uh, I couldn't go up to Minneapolis this year for their days that are live uh, and get up there. Uh, they are doing a third day that is virtual only, so I will be part of that on Wednesday. So I'll be doing that. I'll be seeing a couple of other things during the week. Uh, but yeah, and doing, doing some infirm stuff uh, we'll be seeing. And then I get to calm down for the next week. Yeah. Before I restart the final push as we get into December. Not December is never as quite as many of these things as there is in January, as there is in November, but we still have them. So we'll be talking about that stuff then. But otherwise, look forward to talking to you guys next week here on current federal tax developments.